0: This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U, at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Okay, you guys are almost as bad as faculty, but not quite. I want to welcome you to the spring coverly lecture. I'm Deborah Stipek. I'm the dean of the School of Education. Um, We're very fortunate today to have California Secretary of Education, Alan Burson, to talk to us about reinventing the American high school back to the future. A little more about uh, Secretary Burson in just a minute. Before I introduce him, I want to give you a little background on this Coverley Lecture Series. Uh, The series was established in the honor of the first Dean of the School of Education, Elwood Coverley. Uh, um, Mr. Coverley donated $500,000 to the school Uh, just a while ago, which went far enough to build this whole building, so that gives you a little bit of a sense that it wasn't in in recent years, Uh, and to endow the library. Um, The series is designed to encourage a dialogue about important issues in education. It's been in place since 1933. So Alan, you're continuing a very prestigious uh, tradition with your lecture today. So a little bit on our speaker. Alan Burson, as I think everyone here knows, was appointed uh, California's Secretary of Education in July 2005 by Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, When I mentioned, whoops, oh dear.
1: Don't touch anything.
0: I thought you might like a little preview of what was to follow. Okay, so. (laughs) When I mention a few of his accomplishments, I think you'll understand why the governor was so eager to tap him for this important position. Uh, Immediately prior to his appointment, Secretary Burson served for seven years as superintendent of public education in San Diego schools, um, the nation's eighth largest school district, where he led what most of us believe is the most innovative and important district reform effort that the country has ever seen. He also served as chair and member of the California Commission on Teacher Credentialing from 2000 to 2003. Prior to becoming superintendent, um, he served as the United States Attorney for the Southern District of California before that. He served as the Attorney General's Southwest Border Representative before that. Um, he was a senior partner in the Los Angeles firm of Munger, Tolles, and Olson. Um, Alan Berson is a member of a lot of very prestigious and important boards, including the boards of EdVoice, the Broad Institute for uh, Superintendents, the National Council on Teacher Qualities Advisory Board, the Urban Affairs Council of the American School Boards Association, Board of Trustees of the Neurosciences Institute, I could go on and on to um, noteworthy ones that were on a very long list, the Board of Overseers for Harvard University? The Visiting visiting Committee for the Harvard Graduate School of Education? Um, I'm very glad to say that recently, Secretary Burson saw the light (laughs)
2: He realized
0: um, where the real action was in the field of education and he joined the Stanford School of Education family. He's been co-teaching a seminar this year on policy analysis with Linda Darling Hammond. Um, It's been a sensational and an incredibly authentic experience for students. Uh, It's not every paper that a student writes that is read by the Secretary of Education. Uh, It's my great pleasure to welcome Secretary of Education, Alan
3: Burson. Thank you. you.
1: Thanks, Trevor. That was very nice. (laughs) Thank you.
3: Thank you, Dean Starpeck, and uh, good evening. I'm looking forward to the dialogue that we will have after the uh, presentation, but I will say that um, in addition to uh, being proud to be here, I'm uh, a little bit uh, more uh, nervous than usual in terms of uh, public speaking for two reasons. One is I uh, have an opportunity to appear in front of uh, our students uh, that uh, Professor Darling Hammond and I uh, uh, work with uh, every weekend. Even more so, uh, uh, next to Professor Darling Hammond is my uh, wife, uh, Lisa, Judge Lisa Foster, who is a uh, Stanford undergraduate uh, and actually attended uh, attended classes here in uh, uh, in Coverly Hall, actually. I think psychology was the uh, course that she remembers uh, most uh, back from uh, the uh, 70s. <laughs> what I'd like to do uh, tonight is uh, put a uh, provocative uh, thesis in front of you regarding uh, American high school. We are at this stage when uh, everyone at the top policy levels of the state and national uh, governments are focused on high schools. When uh, President uh, George Bush calls for the extension of No Child Left Behind to the high schools And when the National Governor's uh, Summit of 2005 specifically focuses on high school reform, uh, when Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger's, a major plank of his uh, education uh, program is career technical education in the middle schools and the high schools, and as recently as a week or so ago when Margaret Spellings proposed linking the system of financial aid for colleges to a completion by students of a rigorous secondary program, it tells us that something is happening. It tells us that there is a one of those seismic uh, periods when uh, the old gives way to the new and we don't quite know where we're going in terms of high school reform, but that something is happening. What I'd like to do to start the uh, discussion is to share with you uh, an experience that we had in San Diego City Schools. One that in fact started the redesign of our high schools with the help of Stanford and the redesign network in 2003, 2004. It followed on the heels of a very extensive reform that focused on the quality of teaching K-12, but as a case study that was developed here at the School of Education showed, when we hit the high schools, we hit a wall, and that what we had tried K 8 was not working. And while I have been uh, accused of many things, it's never sticking with a poor idea, particularly one that produces poor results for students. So, what I'd like to do is share with you the three minute videotape that shows the energy that was attended to the redesign of six large comprehensive high schools in San Diego. Uh, into 16 small schools and then ultimately to the opening of 14 small schools. Uh, you will gather a sense of the energy, and then we can set about the uh, tougher tougher task in some ways of saying, but to what end and what should the American high school be about uh, in the 21st century? San Diego, and 3, 2004. So in fact, there was a lot of energy and uh, there was a second part to that video that showed uh, more of the students actually gathering in the small schools. What you saw in those three minutes of video were the teachers actually setting down to plan uh, both the curriculum and uh, the structure of the small high schools. Why the focus on high school in the 21st century in the United States? Let me go back and very quickly offer you a uh, perspective uh, that certainly affected us in in San Diego. This is uh, Norman uh, Rockwell's uh, painting of Ruby Bridges in New Orleans in the 1950s, uh, entitled uh, The Problem We All Live With. Uh, In fact, uh, the current efforts of reform uh, started uh, in the modern age with Brown versus Board of Ed. Brown versus Board of Education for a lawyer, educator, uh, clearly from a judicial standpoint, the most important uh, Supreme Court judgment of the 20th century, uh, in which apartheid was outlawed in this country, in which formal desegregation, hard to believe that it existed, uh, but existed uh, as long as, as, while I was eight years old, sometimes when I think back and I say, is it possible that when I was eight years old, we had, apartheid in the United States? And the answer is yes, clearly we did. And Brown versus Board of Ed started the movement uh, in education and then to desegregation elsewhere in America. But the second part of Brown versus Board of Ed that offered a hope of an equal educational opportunity to all students, uh, we are now 51 years later, are still pursuing and have not delivered that to to, uh, the children of America. So that in fact, We've just come through a 30-year period in which, from 1954 until the mid-1980s, judges basically micromanaged American schools. Uh, they were under court orders, and it was only in the mid-1980s with Chief Justice Rehnquist that the Supreme Court started to remove the federal courts from the micromanagement of the America school children and school systems. For 30 years, it was basically a question of court decrees that first attempted desegregation and then started to try to compensate for the weak education that so many children, particularly children of color and children from lower socioeconomic backgrounds received in America. When education was returned to educators beginning in the mid 80s, it was done within the regime of standards-based reform And one of the interesting phenomena that I've seen both as a school superintendent and as now the the Secretary of Education is that the philosophy and the theory of school reform in the United States, which accounts for so much of the turmoil and the effort that's going into it, that so few people, even among opinion leaders like yourselves, actually can articulate at any great length what standards-based reform is. Indeed, in most meetings that I go to of business people, civic leaders, uh, and indeed students, I ask for those of you who could speak for more than two minutes about what standards-based reform is in the United States, would you raise your hand, please? Uh, A handful, a handful of, uh, of people among our best and brightest and among the opinion leaders who can talk about the regime that we are operating under. It actually is a revolutionary concept. Uh, For most uh, of American history, we compare students to other students and we had a bell curve that located students in the bottom quartile in the middle and then at the top quartile. And for years, as that was translated into actual schoolroom practice, the same children always found their way to the bottom quartile. And it often depended much more on what they looked like and from where they came from rather than what they knew and could do. What standards-based reform does is it sets up very rigorous standards of what children need to know and be able to do at each grade level in each of the major subjects language arts, mathematics, social studies, science, visual visual and performing arts, physical education, and science. Grade by grade from kindergarten until the senior year in high school, we now have a system in which we are attempting to teach to standards. And what we do in evaluating whether a child has succeeded is not to look to the child to the right or to the left, but rather to see whether or not that student has met each of the standards that he or she are required to meet. It compares a student against a fixed standard, not a fellow student. A revolutionary notion and indeed much of what we are doing in American public education today is attempting to build capacity to deliver on that promise the second half of Brown versus Board of Education, to provide a quality education Uh, to each of our students. Uh, As you came in, you uh, were given a uh, group of slides and I'll move through many of them very quickly uh, so that we can leave time as the good dean suggested uh, for uh, dialogue and interaction and you'll have an opportunity uh, in due course to go back and look at those slides that are of of interest to you. But the fact of the matter is in standards-based education we have made significant progress with much more progress to be made in the elementary grades, particularly in the primary grades. What this uh, graph depicts is on the school accountability system in California, we actually see that 800, which is the target that has been set by the state as the level which we seek all schools to meet, uh, that, We are uh, moving in the right direction uh, as we are with regard to the middle schools, but it's the high schools that have become uh, the area of concern. They're big, the teachers who teach in them are geared to subject matter and not reading or other gateway skills. Uh, They just seem as though we're stalled when it comes to improving student achievement at high schools. The statistics and the graphs have become distressingly familiar that document the weaknesses that we face as a society as well as as a school community in confronting the weaknesses of high school performance. Uh, this is a uh, depiction of 10 of our students who start high school in the ninth grade, uh, seven graduate, fewer than four of them will actually go to college. Fewer than three of them are still enrolled in their second year of college. And fewer than two will complete a degree, either an associate's degree in the community college or a four-year baccalaureate degree within six years, 150% of of the time in, in, in college. In a time in which we know the world is flat, the economy is global and the market is unforgiving, it causes and creates a significant uh, concern on the part of not only policymakers but mothers and fathers and students uh, as well as the American uh, public. The fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, that staying in high school does not seem to do much with respect to improving the capacity of our students. Uh, This uh, demonstrates in the categories by which we assess student achievement that in fact, the number of students who remain in the below basic at the basic level and above basic in proficient or advanced basically stays the same from the eighth grade through the 11th grade. And of course, the central problem confronting American society is the achievement gap between most African Americans and most Latinos and most Indo-Chinese students on the one hand and most Caucasian and Asian students on the other hand. It is the central challenge to American public education. The academic achievement gap is what Brown versus Board of Education was all about, and it is, from my perspective, the central assignment of this movement toward equal justice under law. Without dealing with the academic achievement gap over the next generation, speaking to the students, your generation, uh, we will uh, reap the winds of problem that are embodied in this glaring gap between what our students do based on their race, ethnicity, and their socioeconomic status. 21% of Latino students in California are far below basic, and psychometricians will tell you that far below basic essentially is no better than random guessing on the standardized test scores that in fact are given to students to reach this assessment. Nineteen percent are proficient or above between the ninth grade and the eleventh grade. The situation with regard to African-American students, Native Americans, is not much better. And in fact, we see that the graduation rate of public high school students for the ninth grade, who enter the ninth grade four years later, is depressingly stuck, such that 54.6% of our African American ninth graders actually graduate, 54.1% of our Latino ninth graders graduate four years later, and so on. This is the academic achievement gap with respect to men and the situation with respect to young women, slightly better, but still unacceptable. What happens in terms of the uh, ninth grade situation is you see that because of social promotion, Hardly any students leave school between kindergarten and the ninth grade. Uh, What you see are smaller classes, you see more parental involvement, uh, you see more nurturing, and frankly students have been passed along because for many years educators realized that having students held back and repeating grades did not in most cases lead to a different result. So students were passed along until they got into the ninth grade and then the world collapsed in on them. Uh, Instead of having a teacher through the day, they had five or six different teachers. Teachers, instead of knowing students, would have up to 175 students split among five periods. Students who were unable to read at grade level could not access textbooks in any of the core subject matter areas. They could not participate meaningfully in class. They could not successfully complete examinations, and then teachers did what teachers needed to do based on the relationship with that student. Students who had been passed along through the school system started to accumulate three, four, and five F's, and then between the ninth grade and the eleventh grade they started leaving school in great numbers. Let me go back to the men. What happened What happened to the f- four out of ten African-American male students who started the ninth grade and were gone by the 11th grade? Uh, what happened was in San Diego, we typically had 10,000 ninth graders in our school system, and we very rarely graduated more than 6,400 of them. And this was what happened. They were moved, and they left school, and did not graduate from high school. And those that did graduate from high school were remarkably unprepared for college work. And this chart indicates that of that two-thirds of students who graduated from high school when they moved on to the university. of them, more than a third, required remediation with respect to mathematics, and 45% needed remediation with regard to English language arts. A dismal tale, and this only affected the two-thirds of students who graduated from high school. Being the father of three daughters, I, I note that in a time when we are mostly concerned with young males now, uh, that in fact the achievement gap on mathematics between our young men and our young women is something that again needs to be addressed over the coming generation. But again, the problem of remediation with regard to all of our students who graduate from high school talks about the need to do something differently. The first uh, proposition I offer you tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is that uh, the the tale of the American high school is one that has been discussed now for most of the last 100 years. And that it is a discussion and an ongoing conversation about what does a democracy require of its high schools? What is the role of a high school in the American democracy? Uh, Is it in fact equal access to education? Or is it equal outcomes? with regard to education. And here I think we need to uh, consult history uh, because uh, as we are reminded by Santayana, those who uh, fail to remember the past are condemned to repeat it. In 1900, only one out of 10 14 to 17 year old American students attended high school. And the Movement to the end of the 20th century to almost 99% of students starting high school at least is a tale of increasing access for American teenagers to secondary education. What is interesting is what happened when more American students came to the American high school. And here we should go back and consider that in 1893, there was a meeting of an august group of educators called the Committee of Ten that called for a liberal academic education for all of America's high school students. This is when students were expected to master Latin. Uh, All of them were uh, treated to a regime of subjects from history to science, and it was one standard curriculum for all students. As the number of students increased who were attending American high schools, there began a movement, in fact, involving Dean Coverley, among others, that called for differentiation. And this tale is actually documented very well by Diane Ravitch in her book, Left Back, in which we went from a academic curriculum for all students to the notion that offering one curriculum to all students was actually an elitist notion and that democracy would be embodied in a differentiated curriculum. Uh, Dean Kerberley published his famous uh, text called Public School Administration in 1916. And in fact, Dean Kerberley called for differentiated curriculum for different students based on what their likely occupation would be as they moved into adult life. And this was in fact a central tenet of progressive education. That in fact, we needed to prepare students for different roles in life. And indeed, by the end of the sixth grade, we should be able to say whether you're going into a university track or a vocational track or a homemaking track, but again, it was tying the secondary education to an occupational outcome. And then, as they say, the rest is history. That notion was then taken because of the prevalent role of race and class in American history and American society to the tracking of students uh, into educational pathways that indeed were determined much more by what you looked like and who your parents were than in fact what you could do and demonstrate as a matter of aptitude or ability. James Conant in 1959 wrote the book, The American High School Today, in which he legitimated the notion that students would go to the university track, but it would be no more than 15 to 20% of American students and the remainder would go into vocational training, homemaking, or life adjustment studies. The civil rights movement of the 1960s put an end to that notion or the legitimacy of it and we have moved steadily toward the notion that everyone should be given a college prep curriculum, the so-called A through G requirements, and that in fact the tracking that was called for and caused by a differentiated curriculum was the wrong path. As we increased the number of students who were in the American high school, we went from a graduation rate for 17-year-olds from 29% in 1930 to 50% in 1940 to 70% in 1960, and then we hit the top point of 80% in 1969, after in fact the 60s, which I would argue being a child of the 60s, that was so good for American society, in some ways, was not so good in terms of maintaining rigorous academic standards in American schools. And what we saw with the change in the reaction in the 19, after the 1970s, was a reduction in the graduation rate that was at 64% in 1995 and has sort of stabilized at about 70% since then. Paul Warren, a legislative, uh, in the Legislative Analyst's Office in in Sacramento, basically identifies three groups of students in the American high school today. 25% are on the university track, 45% are on the general track, and 30% drop out. The 45% and the 25% are the 71% who graduate, and the 30% who drop out from high school account for the remainder of our students. The issue, ladies and gentlemen, is okay, what do we do about the American High School. And the proposition that I would like to uh, offer uh, tonight is that we need to be careful because each of the suggested routes that we take and talk about with regard to reform holds out promise to be sure but also the risk of going back to the past. What do I mean by that? When you Listen, today we talk about the three R's. The high school reformers talk about the three R's. We talk about rigor, we talk about relevance, and we talk about relationship. Rigor is generally intended to communicate the notion that every student needs to be prepared for college or the capacity to go to college through the A through G curricular requirements. These are the requirements established by the CSU, the California State University and the University of California, and define what the university looks for in terms of the entry requirements uh, to those institutions. That is what we refer to as being on the university track. Indeed, tracking continues in America high schools today in California, because the 45% who are on the general track have not completed the requirements and typically are taking courses that are watered down and of lesser quality in terms of mathematics, history, social studies, and science. When we talk about rigor being A through G, many critics will say That's living in Lake Wobegon. The notion that everyone could take and meet an academic curriculum of that rigor is simply not realistic. That's the pushback there and a central question as we go forward in reshaping the American high school. The second is relevance. Many of you will recall high school curricula in your high schools that simply were not engaging. And that has given rise to the notion that perhaps we need to build back a career technical education component into our high schools that would relate subject matter to actually career paths or certainly various education sectors. We deal with the lack of interest And student engagement by creating new types of courses that would teach algebra in the context of a specific career pathway and then we talk about relationships and you noticed in that video clip of the creation of small high schools was a way to deal with the phenomenon again created by James Conan's notion that we needed to do away with small high schools in America because in fact it was only the large comprehensive high school that could provide the differentiated curriculum that would be necessary for all students to have a specific curriculum that was suited for his or her future occupation. So we in fact moved to the large comprehensive high school that most of us have attended in which 70% of American students attend high schools that have more than 1,500 students in them. Many students attend high schools much larger, the largest being Belmont Senior High School in Los Angeles attended by more than 5,300 students. So we have our rigor, relevance and relationship and the concern that I would offer ladies and gentlemen, is that as we take these intellectual constructs and we try to translate them into actual classroom experience, uh, that in fact we run the risk uh, both of going back to the past and finding ourselves tracking uh, students into lower level curricula and we're out of school altogether. The fact of the matter is, as we redesign our high school, the, question, the primary question that we have to face is, what do we do and should we redesign our high school to confront the fact of 30% of our students dropping out? And the controversial proposition that I would offer you today is that we have a lot of work to do in the American high school and that if we attempt to restructure it for the purpose of working through to the students who are dropping out, we are likely to lose the core academic mission that the high school needs to have in the United States. It is a fair question to say, what about the dropouts? And I want to come to that in a moment. But the proposition I offer you today is that we have made a fundamental decision in the United States in the wake of Brown versus Board of Education to provide an equal educational opportunity to all of our students. And in fact, what causes dropouts are not high school but the lack of preparation. It's not the structure of high school, it's the inability of our system to be able to educate all of our students to high levels of literacy and numeracy such that they can access content at the, in the university or in the workplace. A Paul Warren's chart from the LAO analysis produced, reproduced by EdSource shows that the dropout rate by ethnic group and racial group is clearly correlated to below basic performance with respect to literacy and numeracy? The answer is not to retreat from the academic mission of the high school. It's not to create a differentiated curriculum in our high school. It's to hold ourselves to the standard of providing a decent, capable education to all of our students, particularly the students who can access what we offer in a strong academic program which I believe to be far more than the 25% of our students who are currently on the university track. The problem with rigor, relevance, and relationship for all of the insights that it offers us is that it ignores the fundamental fact that student achievement depends first and foremost on the quality of teaching. It's first and foremost an issue of how good is the instruction. And we can restructure our high schools as much as we'd like. We can move students, we can change classes, we can indeed create small schools, we can do all of that, but ladies and gentlemen, unless we improve the quality of teaching in our schools, we will not see student achievement improve. It's about the teaching in order to improve the learning. And the slides which I invite you to uh, study, these uh, in fact are the the next three slides were slides that I used in San Diego demonstrating how important it is for students to have quality teachers and the, the consequences of students not having quality teaching in this case in the Dallas context for three years in a row. It's the quality of the teaching and it's also confronting the fundamental fact that we have a maldistribution of quality teaching in the United States. Indeed, together with the academic achievement gap and perhaps related to it, I would say and submit to you that the maldistribution of quality teaching, who teaches in which schools and how they get there and how long they stay there, is the primary challenge of American public education today. The fact of the matter is, unlike any other profession that I know, we send our newest practitioners into our toughest schools and we ask them to take on the greatest challenges and then we wonder why 50% of them leave the profession within the first five years. This data, which would be replicated, I submit to you in every large system in california indeed in the united states shows that in the lowest achieving schools the so-called api one or two schools we have the largest number of new teachers and we don't have the kinds of supports that we need for them in those schools Yes, we can do something with curriculum, and indeed there is something odd about the way in which we define the core academic curriculum, and there needs to be much more work done to shape the curriculum, to have relevance not only to higher education, but also to a high-performance workplace. And some of that work is going on, but it is odd that we use the University of California and CSU A through G college prep courses to define rigor when in fact, I have no argument with two years of history, four years of English, three years of math, two years of laboratory science, two years of the same world language, visual and performing arts and an elective. But when you look at the UC requirements, they are geared to entry at the UC. And under the California master plan, one third of California's graduating class is supposed to go to either the CSU or the UC, so that what you see over time is constantly ratcheting up of what is considered the UC uh, entry level uh, course requirements and I submit to you that we need to have these kinds of requirements as contrasted with this, which is what 45% of our students actually get, but that we need to redefine the curriculum such that it is academic, but also applied and geared both to the university, but also to the workplace. And then of course, we have the the academic uh, achievement gap in which we again see six of the state's largest uh, school districts, graduate less than half of their Latino students. So you would say to me, what about the dropouts? If indeed we're going to have a academic mission, adhere to what do we do on the dropouts? My first response is the one I offered you. We need to constantly improve the quality of teaching in the American public school system. So few and few of our students come to the high school three, four, and five years beneath grade level so that they come with the capacity to be able to access an importantly academic content uh, study. And indeed, we pay a huge price for not meeting that requirement. I always felt when I was the United States Attorney and I'd go into city jails and county jails and state prisons and federal penitentiaries, I would notice that the large majority of our inmates were people of color, usually young men of color, and what they shared was illiteracy. And indeed, what we see over the last 20 years is a quadrupling of our prison population in California. And indeed, the racial ethnic composition of the California prison population 35% white, 34% black, 37% Latino or Hispanic. But the worst news is our juveniles. In the California Youth Authority, you see that fully 87% of the inmates or the young people who are in the California Youth Authority are in fact young people of color. For the most part, young males of color, and usually illiterate. So what do we do about the dropouts that will continue to mount until we meet the challenge K through eight, so that few of our ninth graders actually come unprepared to access content in the secondary schools? Uh, I submit to you that uh, We need to solve this problem, and important work has been done in talking about what the community colleges need to do and what alternative options need to be available for our young people. In one of the uh, important projects mounted by the Stanford School of Education and led by uh, that terrific uh, leader in American education whose retirement we celebrate tomorrow, I understand, Michael Kirst, We developed the idea of how important the community colleges are to working with the young people of California and how we need to bridge from the secondary school to create the capacity and the pathway for students to enter the community college. I submit to you that over the next generation as we build up our capacity K-8 and remove the threat of so many of our young people leaving the high school that we will still need to have the community colleges play a critical role in California's public education and be a place in which students can in fact get additional time to prepare for their occupations and careers. Let me wrap up by making the claim very directly we should stay the course with regard to the academic mission of the American high school. Yes, we need to make the curriculum more engaged, but we cannot retreat from the standards that have been set. When we consider that the California high school exit exam tests for a 10th grade English language arts standard and a sixth and seventh math, stand, grade, math standard with some algebra in the, in the eighth grade. We should see that uh, we have a long way to go, but in fact, we need to work with this. And while my colleagues at Stanford and I have differences over what the assessments might be and disagreements, I think we need to recognize that the answer is not to retreat from the academic mission or the rigorous academic curriculum but rather to build the capacity to deliver it to more students. We're making progress and over time we need to ratchet up the standards of the Casey but in fact we now have on the last administration of the Casey 70 percent of our English language learners passing both the English and the math components of the exam and over time building up the capacity to deliver quality teaching, we can improve that. We're seeing an increase in the number of students who are taking high-level math courses from 2001 to 2004. We see an increase. It's still not enough, but the trend is in the right direction. We see the same with regard to Algebra 1. Depends on whether you look at the glass as being half empty or half full, to be sure. But I see this as progress and will be the, uh, the last uh, message I want to leave, leave you with tonight before opening it up to questions. Uh, we are moving in the right direction. And we are seeing improvement with a lot more to go. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, that discussion that I talked to you about uh, before, which is the the dialogue between uh, equity of access and the kind of curriculum we offer our students is one that will continue to go on. Uh, This is a a clear case in which the, the, the American high school needs to be reshaped with clear purposes in mind. And in fact, for all of the energy that was in the videotape at the beginning, uh, there was less clarity for our teachers than I would hope would be the case over the next generation. If there is one uh, message I would leave you with, it is whether when we introduce rigor and in relationship and relevance, uh, let us not uh, move away from ensuring every classroom a quality teacher and every student an academic education of quality and rigor. If we have time, I would be delighted to uh, engage in a dialogue and respond to some of your uh, uh, tougher inquiries. Uh, I uh, would appreciate um, if you would uh, wait for the microphone first so that everyone can hear the question and then I will respond as, uh, as well as I can.
1: how would you propose to remedy the maldistribution of
3: quality teachers? In in two uh, basic respects, and this is not a, um, because remember that uh, we have in public education something that is uh, a product of district and union collective bargaining relationships over a large number of years. So to point out that we have in public education Uh, something that does not exist in uh, virtually any other sector now, which is uh, a almost absolute trump of seniority that is coupled with a single salary schedule, which means that regardless of the subject you teach, you come in at the same level of compensation and you move along at virtually the same level of compensation. Uh, These are practices that were the result of a progressive development 30 years ago that actually now almost ensure that we have the maldistribution. Because what teachers do in the individual context of their lives when there is not a good school culture or a good school environment, a strong principle with a team of teacher leaders is that they exercise the prerogatives they have to leave the school and to move to a less challenging context. Uh, absent the kinds of incentives and the kinds of school cultures that we need to build in all of our schools, we will not be able to address that. Uh, So that uh, in in short, what I would do is use um, uh, what we know about building school cultures, which starts with an excellent principal, teacher, and teacher leaders, and then I would actually use some incentives both monetary and non-monetary, to uh, attract and retain teachers in our toughest schools. That's what every other sector that I know of and every other profession relies upon.
2: You talked about uh, quality teachers and you mentioned that many teachers leave the profession within five years. As a matter of fact, about half half the number of teachers. Have you worked at or thinking about a way to develop a career program for teachers? As a retired teacher of 32 years in the California school district, I left at the end of the career in the same position that I was when I started. I've seen uh, statements about ways to develop levels of t- career teachers that may lead to the more experienced teacher being a person who can help the younger ones in both the classroom control and, and development of curriculum? What's your reaction?
3: No, I, I think in fact related to the first question, I, I, the, the uh, absence of a structure, a career structure, that would recognize that there are new teachers, associate teachers, and that over time you would develop the capacity to be a professional leader and that the fact that we don't have either uh, levels to provide uh, for that, let alone compensation, to be accorded to that, is a huge uh, and debilitating feature of our world. Uh, The single salary schedule and the seniority issues are uh, significant obstacles, but not obstacles to doing what you're suggesting. And I often think that if we ended up, and I've heard many of my colleagues at Stanford uh, uh, talk about the notion of of what if we had the kind of quality teaching with the support that teachers deserve uh, so that in fact, we would have five teachers responsible for 120 students and you would have a mix of experience levels and you would have a series of supports with coaches for teachers so that it was much more on the apprentice uh, uh, of of the new teacher working with an experienced teacher and being able to share responsibilities of teaching, would that not produce a better series of results? I believe along with you that it is and that the uh, future of uh, our profession as educators requires that we develop those kinds of career ladders and structures of teaching in which groups of professionals work together and support one another uh, to solve problems. The essence of a profession is using the skill and knowledge that you have as a professional within an accepted framework of that skill and knowledge, and you apply it to solve cases that come before you. Uh, dealing with the facts of those individual cases actually requires a lot more collaboration than comes from leaving our teachers in the isolation that you describe.
0: Uh, hello. <laughs> Hi, I'm an employee retention specialist and I've spent most of my life in the corporate community, So I. believe that we need to provide a superior education for our students to be able to compete globally, because I see what's happening in American businesses. And I'm wondering what has to be done to actually implement in California some of the support ideas you have for retaining teachers um, to help them be successful with the changing student demographics and, um, you know, some of the challenges they have in a performance-based standard type of framework that they now have to work with. What what do we have to do in California to make that happen sooner rather than later? Well,
3: first is that it's not gonna happen sooner. It's not gonna happen sooner because this is not and it's something we have got to come to grips with that building capacity to to meet academic standards requires a a support effort uh, that is not gonna take place uh, over um, Uh, 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 just a short number of years. Uh, This is the work of generation, a generation of of American educators supported uh, and teachers who need to be supported in ways they have not. Uh, Just on that perspective, I believe that our obligation is to hand over as educators, as each generation of of educators is expected and required to hand over the system in better shape uh, than uh, it received it. Uh, We have not, as an American community, supported teachers sufficiently for that to have happened in the last uh, number of uh, decades. Uh, To do it is going to take a significant investment and a resolution of the kind of gridlock that we have politically uh, between those who will not consider new revenues and those who will not look at the productivity of existing resource allocation. But for me, and I've had some great teachers here at Stanford and elsewhere and in San Diego, It's about how quickly we can accelerate the quality of the teaching profession. It's about the teaching. It's about the teaching.
2: Mr. Secretary, thank you for an excellent speech. Um, My comments um, are towards, is there a need to study the natural propensities of students? Uh, Last year, in a speech to Harvard Summer School students, President Summers, referring to his earlier speech, that generated controversy. I've heard of it. (laughs) Uh, Still, he mentioned that, he said, why do we observe the trends we do? And uh, I think there is perhaps a need to address that question in an objective manner. And my my question um, relates to two issues, one is, um, is it better to study standardization versus customization? Meaning, is, there, is it better to study more local customization of education system, and also perhaps to study which ethnic groups have a natural, may, maybe I shouldn't use that word, but which groups of people have uh, more propensity for certain trades or certain areas of study? And the second yeah. question relates to um, education is held as a paradigm of improved earning potential in society. And does, as an, an example, is uh, the Amish people which holds a contrast to that fundamental paradigm. So any thoughts you have on that side? Yeah,
3: uh, we, we, we really don't, uh we, we don 't go there because it 's not accurate and not uh, fair to, to go there to attribute uh, qualities in fact, this dialogue between a differentiated curriculum, which in the for the committee of uh, ten was was not to go, but for progressive educators, the differentiated curriculum was uh, was democratic uh, you know suggests to me that if race and class were not the prevalent Factors in American society that they have been, of course we'd like, we want to customize. When I say don't uh, maintain a strictly academic track for students, it does not ignore that there are differences in, in, uh, in students. But the way in which we measure those differences and the way in which we react to those, those differences have traditionally involved more issues of race and class in the United States than they actually have involved assessments of capacity, let alone coming to some conclusion about natural capacity, which I, I don't actually believe in to begin with. What we need to do is maintain the tension that we have, and when I'm suggesting the academic curriculum, I'm not suggesting that it's not going to have the consequence, certainly in the near term, of the dropouts for the consequences on someone's earning power. But what I am suggesting is that in education, we so often turn over the regime, we swing from one side to the next so quickly that we never give our teachers and our educators enough time to actually go deep into a matter which is going to take decades, not show up with results in a year so that You could have looked at some of those charts and said, well, look, oh, what's he talking about? 4% of students are taking physics now instead of 2%. Well, that's double what it was. And when you look at the grade, if we stay the course, if we stay the course and continue to prepare our teachers, we will see, unless we go back because we swing away to some other theory of action, we will actually see progress over the next generation if we stay the course. And I... I, uh, I'll I'll answer the other part of your question uh, uh, after the talk.
0: Uh, Just a uh, comment that I want to make to the masters admits who are here visiting today. I really, just because I believe in truth of advertising, have to tell you honestly that we do not have someone as distinguished and wise come to talk to us like Secretary Burson every day. (laughs) Um, But we are really grateful for the... The, having uh, Secretary Burson as our colleague and as our friend, and we look forward to working with him on the incredibly important task. I think he has the most important job in the state of California. He probably also has the most difficult job in the state of California in, uh, in transforming our educational program for kids and breaking down that brick wall called the high school. So thank you so much, and to show our appreciation for your, the time you took to come and share your wisdom and experience with us, we have a bottle of School of Education wine.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: and something to drink it in. So please, another round of applause for Secretary Thank Clinton. you so
3: much. Thank you. Thanks so much.
0: Please join us now for refreshments, and I'm sure uh, Alan will be happy to answer some other questions.
3: Well, well, well.
0: The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U, and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.